0: 94, where they redacted. We talked about Jay's Treaty, where they would, they gave nothing because the Senate already had it. They refused to give the materials to the House. So we went through in some detail these historical examples, but we didn't get a chance to talk too much about the theory. So what I want to do tonight, and I've got four topics generally to cover, and jump in and test me on these and tease me on these and uh, let the Senate flesh it out. But uh, the idea is that we can put the, the facts with the theory. So we can continue. We didn't have much enough of an opportunity to talk about the XYZ affair, so we we talk about that. Uh, we can do more examples over history. We, I also want to talk about a movie that I saw this movie this weekend, and it's Justice Story. And I want to talk about what Justice, who was a Supreme Court Justice, what Justice Story had to say about, he didn't call it executive privilege, but this relates to the theory. And then we can also talk about two cases, and there is one and only one case that went to the U.S. Supreme Court, which is U.S. versus Nixon. And there's a lot of history in that case, because it's cited in the opinion. So we can go through U.S. versus Nixon. We can also talk about the Burr case, which we touched on last week. So there's a lot of material, and uh, the more questions you guys give me, the better. That way I'm just not reading from notes and and going to too much theory.
1: Okay, so here on the Statues and Stories show, uh, we have Adam Levinson with us, and I'm repeating all this because we are preparing this podcast. We're on 94.5 FM here in South Florida, WSQF, Blink Radio, Key Game. So Adam, I'm going to try not to interrupt today, and I'm hoping that, Victorius Vidal doesn't either, but since you have so much material, you feel free to just run right through it in uh, in in the only the
2: way you can (laughs) and put us to the test with leading questions whenever you need to. No, don't put me to the test. Examination
0: questions. Okay. Fair enough. And the other point is that. um, what was I going to say, so there will be lots of questions I'll be asking you, and uh, you know the more interactive it is, but the, this is, I think, the kind of material that people will enjoy listening to is turn on the radio and turn on the news, by the way. You know, this is timely material, and uh, you know we're, we're trying to bring it to life, but I, I avoid talking about today's politics, because there's plenty of, of history that we can relate to, and the other observation is that uh, the first is going to be three posts on statutesandstories.com, which is the website that we do these historical posts and all kinds of good historical information for. From primary sources, I like to say from diaries and from letters and communications between the founding fathers and mothers. So people can read more after they listen to the podcast and listen to us live tonight, they can go to the website statutesandstories.com and you can read some of these examples and there will be two more posts within the next week or so to flesh this out. So let's begin then with the theory to lay the groundwork and uh, let me begin with a question and the question is what does the Constitution say, and it's a leading question but it's a trick question, what does the Constitution say about executive
1: privilege?
2: Nothing.
0: Manny, do you agree the Constitution says nothing?
2: I
1: believe uh, that Constitution absolutely says nothing except for the fact that presidents have to always extend their power so that people in Congress can't impede their power. No. And they have to exercise executive privilege more often than not. But I believe the Constitution uh, does not say much about executive... about. Uh, Uh, executive privilege.
0: Okay, and he is absolutely both are correct that the Constitution is silent. So in order to figure out where executive privilege comes from, you have to read it, and I'll be careful with some of the terminology, but the penumbra, you have to look at the interaction and the structure of the Constitution. And remember, the Constitution is only an outline. It's a it's a blueprint for how the government should be set up, but it does not go into excruciating detail that you would see in a statute. So the Constitution, in fact, when you compare it to
1: other countries... Well, like i don't, I got to correct you there. I don't feel like it's, uh, it's a blueprint. I believe it's a mandate on how the government will function.
0: Agreed. Agreed. It's, a, it's a mandate, but it, it's not. It's a skeletal blueprint. It's not fully fleshed out. Yes. Like you would see, for example, in France or in Europe, where their uh, their system is, uh, is fully uh, developed and yeah. uh, you know fully specified. England's a little bit different, because they don't even have a constitution. Right. But, but the point is that you have to look in the, the way that the branches relate to one another, which gets to this idea, and let me get you the closest to what the constitution says. So let me skip ahead to what does the constitution say. And the quick answer is, and I'm going to make a distinction, between Article One and Article Two, Article One, of course, is the legislative power. Article Two is the executive power. But Article One says that all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in Congress. So those, and before we even do executive privilege, you know, there's a little bit of a conflict here between the right. By Congress to request information. So this is the investigatory power or the authority to do investigations. So that's coming up against the president's authority or executive privilege not to release information. So Article 1 says the legislative powers are vested in Congress. And if you think that legislative powers include the ability to do investigations to legislate, that's the, the argument for why Congress has the authority to send subpoenas or to, uh, to bring people in to testify. What does Article 2 say? Article 2, which is even broader, because remember, Article Article 1, and conservatives completely agree with this. Article 1 gives specific enumerated powers to Congress. And remember, it says that legislative powers herein granted shall be vested. But Article 2, Annette, I'm curious what your thought here is. Article 2, which is even broader, says the executive power shall be vested in the president. Right. It doesn't say the executive powers herein granted shall be vested in the president. It says the executive power shall be vested in the president. So, long story short, we've got this conflict or this other encounter pose with. One one another, the legislative versus the executive power. So now let's get into the detail of what are the specific well, powers that are mentioned that come into this debate. But wait so a minute! Have but a you
2: recommendation. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, but you know one of the things you got to consider not only the powers, but also the amendments. So for example, I'm looking at Amendment Number Four, and it says warrants shall issue upon probable cause supported by oath, and particularly describing the place to be searched in the paper. So you have to have specific warrants not general warrants. General warrants were complained against in the Declaration of Independence. And so when you have these investigations, especially by Congress, or even whoever, but especially Congress, they they need to be very specific about what the crime that they allege has been committed. And I think one of the issues in the last couple of years is that the investigations, especially of President Trump, have not had a specific crime. They've been like general warrants.
0: I agree with you that the Fourth Amendment and all of the amendments in the Bill of Rights comes into the conversation because that further flushes out the Constitution, and I agree that as we go into some of the examples and as we go into more of the theory, the more specific the request is and the reason for the request factors into the strength of the exercise of the privilege. So uh, before we get too hard ahead of ourselves, and I agree with your statement that the more specificity there is, the stronger the congressional request is. Also, if it's a request from a court, in a criminal case, and this, by the way, when we get into the Nixon case, we'll go into there's a lot of detail on that decision, which I commend to people. It's not mm-hmm. too long of an opinion. And for the lawyers out there that are listening, there's over 50 headnotes, so there's a, there's a lot of information in the U.S. versus Nixon case. But you're, you're making an excellent point that there are different points of attack, if you will, on the spectrum of how strong is the exercise of the privilege and how strong is the need by Congress to get the information, or for that matter, report to get the information. So let me give, and I'm agreeing with you, let me give some more examples of what does the Constitution say. So Article 2 section three is the recommendation clause where the president is is uh, not required but from time to time shall give Congress information and then it says of the State of the Union mm-hmm. and recommend for their consideration such measures that shall be judged necessary and expedient so how much does that factor into this conversation the answer probably not much but that's an example of where the president shall recommend to Congress in his or her discretion you also have an article Two, section four um, this is where the president is subject to impeachment so that's an argument that in the case of impeachment, Congress has more authority if they're doing an investigation under that express delegated authority. Here's another example, which is Article 1, Section 5, that each house, this is an interesting observation, each house shall keep a journal of its proceedings, and from time to time publish same, accepting some such parts as may, in their judgment, require secrecy. So that's the only time within the body of the Constitution, not the, the amendments, where it mentions secrecy. And it's the House is given the authority to retain in the secrecy of their journals as they may in their judgment require nowhere does it say in article 2 that the president may maintain secrecy of executive department records so it's interesting that it's only in article 1 where the word secrecy appears wow. yep so, uh, and again, this is what constitutional lawyers do, and I don't pretend to be a constitutional lawyer, but they're trying to weave together and make arguments based upon the text of the Constitution, and uh, that's a beautiful process, because the Constitution is, a, is a, an amazing document. So let's now w- work through—really, uh, r- it's here's the question. So if the Constitution doesn't explicitly say executive privilege, and if the Constitution doesn't explicitly say that Congress or the courts can send a subpoena to the president, what's the basis of executive privilege? What's the strongest doctrine in the Constitution for? executive uh, privilege
1: hmm I'm, I'm missed
0: and okay so I'm going to mention some uh, renaissance and enlightenment thinkers so Montesquieu and Locke what are they famous for among other things and Locke natural rights uh, but in terms of how the branches deal with one another well, separation what, what of it, powers uh, I would argue the strongest basis for executive privilege
2: separation it's- of powers
0: there you go. So now I'm going to get into some lower-view articles going more to the theory. So I, I think the, the underlying basis for executive privilege is because of separation of powers. And what does separation of powers mean? It means that you've got three branches, and they check and they balance each other, that the founders purposely set up those three co-equal branches of government. And the argument is that the president has to do his or her job. And when one branch of Congress or one branch of government is impeding upon the executive sphere, and we'll give some quotes later then that's violating the rights of the president. Then you need each of the different branches to stand up and defend their turf. So that's the underlying basis for executive privilege, which is separation of powers. And uh, let me give you some, some some quotes to flesh this out so you know I'm not making it up. So uh, let me start by pointing out that um, so the Constitution doesn't say executive privilege. And we mentioned last week that the first time that that phrase executive privilege was used was during the Eisenhower administration, where Eisenhower raised executive privilege over 40 times. but. The, another thing that people can look at is the, the Federalist papers which I'm going to quote from and also some of the early law books once we had our country and one of the first and most important constitutional treatises a treatise is a law book written to explain the subject so one of the most important early treatises was written by justice story and this is in the early 1800s the first part of the 1800s and uh, this is a quote from justice story and justice story is a justice on the US Supreme Court and a little bit a little bit background about him but he was on the Marshall court he was in the on the Taney Court or Taney Court, and one of his most famous cases was Martin versus Hunter's Lease, which deals with the importance of. We could go into some of the cases, uh, but the importance of federal law and U.S. law over state law and over international law. Um, and and uh, also, he was involved in the Amistad case, which is a movie I saw this weekend. Yep. So, do either of you guys know what I'm talking about when I mentioned? Did you get a chance to see one of these days the, yep. the Amistad case? Yep.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with the Amistad case. Uh, and uh, what, w- did it get to the Supreme Court?
0: Yep, so he was on the U.S. Supreme Court, and he is the one justice that is played by, and I want to say it's a Steven Spielberg movie, and uh, this is the only time that an associate justice of the Supreme Court, it was Harry blackman played justice story oh, in that movie towards the end when the case goes up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, so I thought this was a little interesting side note about uh, Steven Spielberg and about a case involving slavery. This is prior to the Civil War. And Justice Story was uh, you know, one of the judges mm-hmm. that wrote that opinion in the Amistad case. And now let me tell you what he wrote about not calling it executive privilege, uh, and you know you could argue that what I'm going to read is just a portion of a longer story that he tells. But this is the closest he gets to this notion of what happens if Congress asks for information. And again, this is an orally justice who, uh, you know, understood at least early on, uh, you know, how the Constitution was being interpreted. So here we go. This is from Volume Three of his commentaries on the Constitution. And If anyone wants to look it up, it's Section Eight. It's, I'm sorry, it's Section 1555. And Justice Story writes as follows. That the Constitution requires, quote, the President to lay before Congress all facts and information which may assist their deliberation. Justice Story, in his commentaries, continues to say that there is great wisdom, therefore, in not merely allowing but in requiring the President to lay before Congress all facts and information which may assist their deliberations and in enabling him at once to point out the evil what does that mean? And to suggest the remedy. He is thus justly made responsible, not merely for a due administration of the existing systems, but for due diligence and examination into the means of improving them. So I think what Story is describing is that when Congress needs information, you know, it's this back and forth with Congress and the president, uh, where Congress needs information, the president more often than not is going to have the information. And uh, this is his general statement that there is wisdom, therefore, in requiring the president to lay information before Congress, but he doesn't get into, as you said, the Fourth amendment, or uh, when the president is resisting because he has good reason, for example, confidentiality. So now I want to talk about the importance of confidentiality, and uh, I mentioned last week there's a very good law review article by Archibald Cox, written in 1974, and he goes through the analysis of, of how it's played itself out historically, and let me talk a little bit about, um, I don't think we mentioned this last week, but there's a good quote by, and I love the quote from, from Hamilton, uh, and, and also Madison, there's a great quote about um, what the founders intended when, here's, let's go with the farewell address. So in Washington's farewell address, which was written by Madison early, and then later it was written by Hamilton, who fleshed it out and worked with Washington on it. So this is a nice quote in the Farewell Address about separation of powers, and we will remember that the Farewell Address is often read, read every year by alternating members of Congress, and it's been read. It's a nice you know, historical tradition that Congress has to refer to that Farewell Address. So what does Washington say, you know, in his parting shot, his you know his parting wisdom as he's leaving, he's leaving the presidency as the first president in 1796 was. As he says. So I'm quoting from the farewell address. He says it is important, likewise, that the inhabitants of a thinking in a free country should inspire caution in those entrusted with its administration to confine themselves, confine themselves within their respective constitutional spheres, avoiding the exercise of the powers of one department
2: to encroach
0: upon another. The spirit of encroachment tends to consolidate the powers of all the departments in one, and thus to create whatever the form of government, not would be a real despotism, according to Washington. So here, again, you have this notion of constitutional spheres, and one form of government or one branch of government has to be careful not to encroach or take too much power in its own right from the other branch of government what else can we say about uh, secrecy? And in the U.S. versus Nixon case, to get ahead of myself, it's interesting how the footnotes, and I should always point out that when your lawyers are just have nothing better to do and you're reading a Supreme Court or other legal decision, uh, sometimes it's very interesting to see what the footnotes are observing. Sometimes the most important or sometimes the most useful information can be buried in footnotes. So this is footnote 15 in the U.S.-Nixon case. And the, the by the way, I should ask you this. Who, who wrote the opinion? Does anybody know who wrote the Nixon versus U.S. case,
2: 1974?
0: Berger. Berger, right. So Berger wrote, it was a unanimous decision. Uh, one of the justices, Rehnquist, um, he abstained from the case for, for reasons that so he'd work with the Nixon administration. So it was eight justices who voted. But I wanted to tell you about secrecy, as mentioned in the Nixon case. Footnote 14, or 15, mentions the following, that there is nothing novel about governmental confidentiality, and if the president doesn't ra- doesn't waive confidentiality, it's obviously important in some cases more than others to keep executive material privileged and confidential. So the, this footnote 15 says the meetings of the Constitutional Convention in 1787 were conducted in complete secrecy. The footnote goes on to say, that it wasn't just done in secrecy, but those records were sealed for 30 years after the convention. And the uh, footnote also mentions that uh, many of the founders acknowledged that the Constitution could not have been written and well developed had it not been done in secret. So that's an example of the importance of secrecy, as recognized by many of the founders. So I'm putting away my Nixon case if we get a chance to come back to it later. So what else can we talk about still going through the theory before we get into more facts?
1: Well, tra- tra- uh, and- when, the tra- well when the president President Trump came into office, his biggest problem was there was no secrecy in there. The leaks were coming out all over the place. Mm -hmm. So it reiterates that this has been going on for a long time. And quite frankly, the executive branch needs privacy (coughs) and secrecy to
2: operate. Confidentiality.
1: Absolutely. And loyalty. Therefore, you know, him not appointing sufficient amount of people left a lot of Obama era appointees still sitting in their seats uh, undermining him. So uh,
2: I know that, you... and even non-political appointees, Non political ones, the permanent uh, civil service.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, uh, I think we can. Adam, you do not have to comment, as I feared you wouldn't. But uh, carry on, my friend. Continue. Well, I'm
0: carrying on, and I'm agreeing that confidentiality is part of the executive branch that needs to protect, you know, confidential military information, confidential, all kinds of reasons that we can give tonight about why, uh, in many examples, it's absolutely important to preserve executive confidentiality. I uh, know let's test what the, the argument is on the part of the judicial branch in, the, in, the, in the Article 2, Article 3. So the judicial branch would argue that logically the ability to uh, to do justice and uh, to have trials not just criminal trials but any trial so the article three and that's part of the judicial process uh, and we can talk about what article three says but that would extend to issuing orders to require the production of evidence because that's what the Judicial branch needs is evidence. Um, of course, what does Congress need? Congress has the power to legislate. So the argument is that included within the power to legislate is the power to summon witnesses and compel evidence, consistent with the legislative power to do what Congress does. So you know th- this is the argument, and it will sway back and forth depending upon the facts and circumstances of what the material is, why is it needed, how quickly is it needed, is it a national emergency, etc. So that's a little bit of the theory. So there, there from the theory, I want to give you more commentators over time and what have they said. So here, let's go into, um, let's quote Archibald Cox. So Archibald Cox, who was the special prosecutor in the 1970s, uh, he goes on to say that the interaction, he's talking about separation of powers, interaction, not independence, has historically been characteristic of the operation of the three branches of government, that they check one another, they interact, they're not independent, they are interdependent. He quotes in his Law Review article from Justice Jackson, and what's, this is a question for Fred. For what is one of the most important and famous constitutional cases by Justice Jackson in the 1950s dealing with the power of the executive versus the power of Congress? 1950s think Korean War era.
2: Oh, the uh, U.S. deal?
0: You got it. So, Justin J- Justice Jackson and the Youngstown Steel case. Right. And if you go to com, you can read about this once it all gets posted. So, Justice Jackson mentions that the Constitution, quote, enjoins upon its branches separateness but interdependence, autonomy but reciprocity. I'm also going to mention to you that Justice Brandeis is quoted by Archibald Cox. And Justice Brandeis, this is a nice quote about how he thinks separation of powers works. So Justice Brandeis, another Supreme Court justice in the early part of the, uh, the early 1900s, I'm sorry, you have to check the dates for Brandeis, but this is during the progressive era, era turn of the century. So Brandeis' quote is that the separation of powers was adopted, quote, not to promote efficiency, but to preclude the exercise of arbitrary power. That's the reason you have separation of powers and checks and balances. It's not efficient, it's not pretty, but it's to preclude the exercise of arbitrary power. And uh, this is again discussing Brandeis, that uh, the purpose of separation of powers, and when I say separation of powers, executive privilege is part of separation of powers. When the framers drafted it, it was done to create, not to avoid friction, but to create friction. It invites friction as a bulk work against autocracy by means of the inevitable friction incident to the distribution of a governmental power among the three branches. So again, this is Montesquieu's thinking, this is Locke, this is supposed to be that tug-of-war, that push and pull, that accommodation, if they get along, they can accommodate one another, but sometimes if they can't accommodate, that's when you wind up with a case going to the U.S. Supreme Court, which has only happened once. which is. I hate to refer to cases from the 1970s, but the Nixon case is the only time that a case made it to the U.S. Supreme Court on executive privilege. Let me give you more good quotes talking about the concept, and then we'll get into more examples. So here's a quote from Cox himself. This is, again, Archibald Cox, and he sort of fleshes out the conflict. He says the judicial branch, when it needs evidence, should have the power to obtain it. The legislative branch, when it needs information in order to perform its duties, should also have the power to attain it. So each branch has powers. Yet the executive, when disclosure of information will impede the performance of its duties, should have the power to withhold it. So each of them have the power to request information and to withhold information. So here's his third inference he calls. it. So the third inference cuts across the first and second. In any given situation, either the first or second or third must yield. The questions are one who, if anyone, should decide who shall yield and when it shall yield, and two, on what basis shall the decision, if any, be rendered. So that's, in a nutshell, that delicate dance, which is based upon the fulcrum of executive privilege about uh, what gets shared, what you do to get it to be shared, when can you withhold it, and uh, what strengthens the hand of the president, what circumstances strengthen the hand of Congress or the court. So. And again, under the Farewell Address, this is referred to as respective constitutional spheres. Today we call it separation of powers and we call it executive privilege, but this is what we're going to see playing out. So let me now skip ahead to Eisenhower. There's a great quote I want to give you from the Eisenhower time period when executive privilege was used probably most forcefully. So what is Eisenhower saying? This is a letter he wrote. We talked about it last week. A letter that he writes instructing his staff not to testify to Congress, and this is in the context of the uh, the Red Investigation or the the, the Army McCarthy. Uh, what's the name of the hearings? These are the McCarthy
2: um, Army uh, hearings. Yeah,
0: right. Uh, so this is the McCarthy hearings. Yep. So what does Eisenhower say in his letter instructing his military and his secretary of defense not to communicate, not to cooperate? He says the following, because it is essential to efficient and effective administration. This is Eisenhower, who was the man He helped me out. What was Eisenhower's role during World War II?
1: Well, I always called him the five-star general. Supreme but Supreme commander. The supreme commander. Allied commander. And I always said he had the fifth star. No one's ever had a fifth star, and that was debated.
0: This is a fifth star president talking about executive privilege in the 1950s. He goes on to say, because it is essential to efficient and effective administration that employees of the executive branch be in a position to be completely candid in advising with each other on official matters, and because it is not not in the public interest that any of their conversations or communications or any documents or reproductions concerning such advice be disclosed. This is a letter he writes to the Secretary of Defense. "You You will instruct employees of your department, that in all of their appearances before the subcommittee of the Senate, Committee on Government Operations regarding the inquiry now before it, they are not to testify to any such conversations or communications or to produce any such document or reproductions. This principle must be maintained regardless of who would be benefited by such disclosures. So Eisenhower's laying down the law, and he says, you know, thrusting at his chest and uh, using a broad and uh, robust exercise of executive privilege, that not on my watch, I'm not going to allow the... Defense Department to cooperate with this investigation by um, you know, involving, and we can get into what they were investigating, but investigating
2: con- Yeah, what, what, what the were McCarthy they investigating? McCarthy they hearings. Were, he was investigating uh, the communists in the federal government which there were plenty. There were plenty and <laughs> yes. he ended up being right. Yeah, well, here the, the most amazing one was the guy who negotiated the Breton Woods, but that was right after World War II.
1: Well, the Federal Reserve.
2: It, yeah, Harry Dexter White. An American economist was an agent of Russia, uh, he, and he uh, negotiated with uh, John, Lord Maynard Keynes to create the Federal Reserve. Uh, not the Federal Reserve. The Breton Woods, the post World War II oh, monetary global monetary. Uh,
1: what the fund, the Marshall Plan. The...
2: Yeah, uh, that was part of it. But you know, the, the you know the gold standard after the war.
1: Okay, cool. All right, continue on. And he was a commie agent. He's a commie agent. Yep. We like saying that on this show. Commie yep, agent. Yep. 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 Okay, go ahead, Adam
0: point out is that when Eisenhower, and let's talk about peaks and and, uh, valleys, when Eisenhower laid down the call and said, it ain't going to happen on my watch, we're not going to cooperate, that's probably the height of executive privilege. And then, uh, you know, after Nixon loses, that's probably the low point of executive privilege. And last week, we talked about how executive privilege started under Washington, where the issue came up three times. It was every two years, coincidentally. And uh, at first he decided not to exercise it at all. And that was in the St. Clair case. And here's a coincidence that that's going to, I think, blow some of your socks off. When I saw this, I, c- I couldn't believe it myself, the coincidence. We have to research this. So we, we asked about the Nixon case the first time the case makes it to the U.S. Supreme Court. So I asked you who the justice who wrote the opinion was, the unanimous decision. Uh, but then I looked to see um, you know, who the attorneys were that were representing the parties. And here's a question that neither of you will know the answer to. I did not know it either. Uh, but it's a nice coincidence. So here's the question. Who was the attorney representing President Nixon in 1974 in the U.S. versus Nixon case.
2: I am stumped. Okay. I, I, I forget I would...
0: No one's going to know this, but let me give you the hint. What was the name of the incident that was the first exercise of executive privilege in 1792, when Washington met with his cabinet and decided, do they have this ability to withhold documents? And you know, what's the president's job when Congress makes a request? That was the
2: Jay's Treaty.
0: So, Jay's Treaty, seventeen ninety-six, but this had to do with a war on the Northwest Territory with Indian Native American tribes.
2: Saint Clair. Saint
0: Saint Clair. So, how do you like this? The. So in other words, back in 1792, General St. Clair was being investigated because American troops were massacred, and it was a big military defeat, and Congress wanted to find out why. Was there such a bad bad defeat, and was it uh, something that uh, the general was responsible for, or was it that we weren't giving enough ammunition and supplies to the troops? Do we need more troops? So that was what they were investigating, and uh, that was referred to as the St. Clair incident following the Battle of the Thousand Slain. Um, There are other names for that battle, but the name of the incident was the St. Clair incident. So coincidentally, the attorney in Washington, D.C., for the president, and the only attorney listed for the president, was James D. St. Clair.
2: Unreal. Was he a descendant of that St. Clair?
0: I got to look into that because how coincidental would it be if the first incident involving executive privilege in 1792 was then yep. argued by a descendant of uh, of the general uh, who was uh, not protected by executive privilege, but where executive privilege was implicated? So it's a nice, right. nice little coincidence for people if uh, interview trivia question yep. how Saint Clair pops up in any conversation about executive privilege. Yep. Yeah. I'll okay. Definitely so. so I'm now going to be referring to uh, more of the statutes and stories website. And these are things that are mentioned in the the post that was put up over the weekend. Uh, So here's just a a nice definition of executive privilege. So what is executive privilege? Executive privilege can be defined as an implied right, it's not expressed, it's not explicit, it's an implied right of the president and high-level executive branch officials to withhold information from Congress or the courts in appropriate circumstances. The right is qualified, not absolute, and has evolved over time as the result of this give and take between the branches of government. And when we get into the Nixon case, what uh, an important consideration talking about this give and take is Nixon only was seeking uh, he was using a, be careful with here, but it was a very broad exercise of executive privilege. So earlier you pointed out that Congress these days is doing very broad and blanket subpoenas and they're seeking all kinds of information. And we can debate about is there a demonstrated need and do they know what they're looking for? And I'm sure the word fishing expedition will come up. But in the context of the Nixon case, uh, he exerted executive privilege across the board and he wasn't giving reasons why it should be protected because of military or uh, to protect I mean, specific concrete information. It was a generalized invocation of the privilege, uh, and that gave way in the Nixon case to a demonstrated need in a criminal investigation. So these are very fact specific, and we get into examples. So, what else? Um, so, when we talk about executive privilege, it's not just information that you might need because it's uh, involving war secrets or involving you know, espionage or diplomatic correspondence, but there's also this notion of deliberative processes, and this is what Eisenhower was mentioning that if an advisor to the president is going to have to work that his confidential advice and his expertise and his or her, you know, wisdom can then be used against an advisor later, that's sort of that's sort of a First Amendment kind of an argument. It can, it can squelch and it can chill good communications and good advice if everything you tell the president it can then later uh, be, uh, you know, air that kind of laundry. a okay, good advice the argument would be if that advice can then be uh, made public. So this is this notion of not just executive privilege of confidential information, but we want to protect the deliberative process. Let me give you some quotes about. Well,
1: wouldn't uh, wouldn't be a false investigation of something that didn't happen? Um, a, a perfect example of you know stopping deliberate process. I mean, as 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 the case is today, when you see a, a group of individuals trying to undermine a presidency, shouldn't the president have the right to? Claim executive privilege on all matters related to an incident that is completely of the creation of uh, a fictitious creation.
2: Well, in this case, the president didn't claim executive privilege.
1: Yeah. He, oh, in other words, he participated he in, in potentially his own lynching.
2: Off. Well, he he, <laughs> he took the risk. Yeah, and then he got exonerated.
1: Okay. All
2: right. So uh, carry on, Adam.
0: I think you're putting your fingers on it, and I used the description before. It's a fulcrum. It's a point where you have this delicate balancing act, this seesaw between the president's right to candid advice and to keep information confidential, that needs to be confidential, versus Congress's right to information. In certain cases, Congress will have a stronger argument for that information. Other cases, Congress will have a weaker argument. And that's why I keep saying it's very fact-specific. And what's interesting about the Nixon case from 1974, and I'm going to read you from it a little later. But, uh, you know, he obviously lost, and that's why I say it was a low point of executive privilege. And in his memoirs, he wrote, uh, maybe dejectedly he writes, that uh, he was the first president, I'm quoting, I was the first president to test the principle of executive privilege in the Supreme Court, and by testing it on such a weak ground, I probably ensured the defeat of my cause. So because he didn't particularize it and say, I need to protect this tape because this tape has, you know, whatever it may be that he needs to say is confidential and give reasons for it to be confidential, uh, um, as opposed to if, as it turns out, tapes were being used to, um, you know, for part of a conspiracy or being used as part of a cover-up, then that may have been the reason why he wasn't able to particularize and give specific reasons why something should have been withheld. But that gets to this notion that the, the court's going to look at these things as part of this delicate balancing act. So we, we've done a lot of the theory for executive privilege, and maybe it makes more sense to go into some of the examples, and then we'll go into Nixon and some of the cases. Sure. Um, so what else can I tell you about examples? We left off last week with the XYZ, if there are many, you mentioned it tonight. So we talked about St. Clair, 1792. And again, this is Washington who winds up giving all the, um, you know, the so sort of the orders, and the, the documentation about the supplying of the troops by General St. Clair and that that, that loss to the Native Americans seventeen ninety four was Morris, he was our ambassador to France, and remember what, what did Washington do in seventeen ninety four when Congress wanted I think it was the it doesn't matter, but it was the Senate of the House wanted diplomatic correspondence with our ambassador to France. What did Congress do in seventeen ninety
2: four He gave him redacted documents.
0: They redacted about 48 redactions. They gave 39 of 40 letters, and that's an example of how, you know, it depends how the privilege is being exerted. Are they giving most of the documents? Are they carving things out and saying, why I'm not giving it to you? So this gets into the weeds. That was 1794, and now we are at 1796. 1796 um, was Jay's Treaty we talked about, and Jay's Treaty, uh, so we, we went into some detail. And here I point out that it was Hamilton who was one of the big advisors, and Hamilton said, give nothing, and Washington agreed. And we read last week from some of the letters that Hamilton wrote to Washington, and that Washington responded to, to the House to say that the treaty was already adopted, the Senate had access to this, I'm now not going to give it to the House, and he gave nothing, 1796. So that now leads us two years later to the 1798, Washington is no longer president. And now we have John Adams as the president, and things are getting really dicey in France. And we had sent three ambassadors to France, three ministers, and we talked about Talleyrand at a prior evening. Talleyrand was the, the head negotiator, the head minister on foreign affairs for France. And France is having economic problems and Talleyrand's uh, counterparts. So if we had three Americans that were negotiating, the three French counterparts, that's Minister X, Y, and Z, asked for a bribe. And I tell you what the pronunciation of the French dollar, the French
1: Libra, can you
2: pronounce it? Oh yeah, that must have been uh, before the revolution. Libra.
1: Libre.
2: No, it's French. L-I-V is in Victor R E. R-E. Libre. Well, you, we ha- ha- you have to be able to say it with the <laughs> like oh, come on. Inspector Clouseau. <laughs> so you'll
0: yeah. pronounce it for me.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Talleyrand so, Cal- 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 was a crook, this. but he was a very able foreign minister, and he served all parties.
0: Vitaly ah, so Rand is the head negotiator and he doesn't ask for the bribe but his three assistants or his three of ministers course. ask for 1.2 million
2: L-I-V-R-E-S one more time Andy. Libre. Uh, no Libre Okay.
1: <laughs> I can do the French I can do the French but I can't You know,
2: so, I can only do my I best I just don't try Frank. hard enough. I, I thought they would have had Franks by then but that must have been Napoleon
0: So uh, that's another question for another night when did the Franks come in so, And it also may be different denominations, I don't know, but they, the French wanted 1.2 million livres, yep. and they also wanted Adams to publicly apologize for some of his anti-French remarks, and these negotiations got nowhere. So what happens? Adams receives word, this is all coded, and it's written in secret code from his envoys on March 4th, 1798. And remember that we were having naval hostilities in the Caribbean. American ships are firing on French ships, and French ships are firing on American ships, so there was an active war in the Caribbean. So. Adams receives this communication that France will not accept peace under reasonable terms. The following day, he notifies Congress of the stalled talks with France. And people who are listeners will remember that the Democrat-Republicans, or the Jeffersonian Republicans, this is Jefferson and Madison and Gallatin, so that now-growing political party uh, is very pro-France because the French Revolution, they thought, was the continuation of the American Revolution, whereas the Federalists, this is Hamilton, Washington, Adams, and people refer to the high Federalists, so the more conservative Federalists were very pro-England because uh, they did not like the the French Revolution is spiraling out of control, it's getting very bloody, and uh, they had business interests with England, so the, the Federalists were more sympathetic to England, even though England was controlled by, and we could argue about how Democratic or non-democratic was England because they had a king, they were a monarchy. But it was at least a constitutional monarchy, unlike France, which did not have a constitutional monarchy.
2: Yeah, so, but England is a constitutional monarchy without a constitution.
0: And that's a nice irony. So we're now-
2: <laughs> What's, What's amazing yeah. is that one moment they're
1: allies, the next moment they're firing cannons at each other in the Caribbean. I mean, the French and the United States uh, should have been allies. Why does this uh, these alliances wear so thin so fast?
0: My God! I mean, that's an excellent question. So we did the Jay's Treaty, 1795. It's negotiated. It's approved 1796, and we just talked about it. So the Jay's Treaty really upset, and I'll I'll use nice terminology, but really upset the French because they thought we sold them out. Who had helped us during the Revolutionary War?
2: Right. Yeah,
0: French, as you said, were our biggest ally, and they spent a lot of money. We talked about the irony that, uh, you know, one of the reasons why France had so much debt under Louis the Sixteenth was because of the assistance that they provided and that Spain provided. And now we enter into Jay's Treaty, which is why Jay's Treaty
1: was so controversial. Wow. It's just, so politics has always sucked.
2: Well, <laughs> as, as Lord Palmerston, uh, Prime Minister of Great Britain in the 1850s and 60s, said, England has no friends, only interests.
1: Wow. (laughs) You liked saying that, too. Yep. I could could see it in your eyes. You can't see that here. The audience can't see it. But he said that with such glee. Unreal.
2: That's the way diplomacy works.
1: Unbelievable. So now the Cubans feel the same way. The 1959 Cubans feel the same way. Wait a second.
2: No, that... And I feel Forget the same it. way
1: when I wrote my book about funding the Battle of Yorktown and then... Forget it. And then, you know, tyranny's promise.
2: Realpolitik. Read uh, Bismarck. Okay. Okay, continue, Adam. So,
0: again, we had Jay Treaty, 1796 that then provokes the French who are attacking our American shipping. And we've got these hostilities in the Caribbean. Uh, Adams sends three ministers to France, and uh, he gets the report back that they're asking for a bribe and they want an apology. And it wasn't a small bribe, it's 1.2 million livres, and don't ask me what that is in dollars back then. So March 19th, the March 4th is when Adams receives word that uh, we're not gonna make peace with France. And if we're not gonna make peace with France, that means that the war is gonna get worse. And it was only a naval war at that point. So about a week and a half later, on March 19th, he declares before Congress that the mission was a failure. And he had notified Congress that the talks had failed. And he says that the mission was a failure. And he goes on to say that um, he did not want to communicate the contents of the dispatches for political reasons. And the envoys had not returned home yet. So he didn't want the envoy's names to be made public until they got home. And what did the pro-French Jeffersonians do? Uh, they thought that Adams' message to, to the Congress was a, quote, insane message. That he's saying that the diplomatic mission had failed, and the Democrat-Republicans want this, the mission to succeed. And they don't want they want to know why did it fail. Is it because the Federalists want to go to war with France? Because they want to support Britain? So there's a lot of assumptions and a lot of politicking taking place behind the scenes. Why is Adams saying that his mission failed? His insane message that he delivers to Congress that Democrat-Republicans fought, so as far as they were concerned, Adams' statements did not explain why the talks had failed, and they wanted to actually see the dispatches that Adams didn't want to release. So the Democrat Republicans believed that the dispatches were withheld because it might put France in a favorable light. They thought Adams was hiding something, and this is going to get to this idea of be careful what you ask for. And there's a famous newspaper back then, and uh, the editor of the newspaper, we've talked about him before, was uh, Bache or, or Bach, and uh, the Aurora, which was that newspaper,
2: uh, in America? Printed. Beach, BH, Beach, like Beach Halsey Stewart. Beach. Yeah, Bache, uh, he was an American. Edited by Bache. Yeah. All
0: Adams' message to Congress, quote, a fatal and destructive to the peace of the <clears> United <throat> States, and calls on Adams to resign because he wasn't sharing anything about why this diplomatic mission had failed. It publishes an open letter to Congress condemning this mysterious secrecy. And Albert Gallatin, who is the Madison's successor, he's now the leader of the House of Representatives, and Albert Gallatin really starts beating that drum of we need to see these records, and demands on April 2nd that Adams disclose the text of these dispatches, and the high federalists, because they had learned what was in the dispatches, so the federalists who are very conservative and are the you know the complete opposite, they're the polar opposite of the Democrat Republicans, wind up agreeing that yeah we'll release it. So the high federalists vote because they probably had uh, leaked out information, because they uh, you know, were able to talk to the Secretary of State and then the Adams administration. So the high Federalists agree, and let me just give you some of the background, the Federalists seeing an opportunity to embarrass the Jefferson faction and wanting war with France, decide to join the Republicans, and the unlikely condition was that the Federalists sponsored this, and no one would have thought that the two opposite teams would agree, they called for the immediate release of the XYZ correspondence. So what does Adams do? Does he? This is information that he's going to want to keep confidential. This is information that could jeopardize the three ambassadors who were in France, and we can talk about who those three ambassadors were. But what does Adams do when both the you know, the both extremes of the two parties, the high federalists or the conservative federalists and the Democrat-Republicans, are demanding that he release these confidential coded messages. So here's the question for you. And they didn't just ask for the messages. They asked for the immediate release of the XYZ correspondence. What does Adams do?
2: Uh. <laughs> uh, he doesn't give in.
0: This, this is an example of be careful what he asked for. He knows what's in the correspondence. What he does, he clears the chamber of spectators and the press. He locks the door. Uh-oh. and I don't know if it's the House or the Senate, but he locks the door to the chambers. And the results were politically explosive. Uh, you know, explosive as the Federalists had anticipated. The XYZ dispatches revealed how, remember, the Democrat-Republicans thought this, this would show France in a favorable light. But instead, what the dispatches revealed is that the French government had snubbed the American envoys, refused to let them meet with the accredited officials until his extortion demands for the 1.2 million livres have been paid and uh, it blows up in the face of the Democrat-Republicans. And uh, Again, this makes the argument about be careful what you ask for, and this resulted in a rallying cry for the Federalists who've been losing political power once they hit the paper, so even though they closed the doors and they locked it, uh, everything leaks out, mm-hmm. and uh, this leads to the, the Federalist motto of millions for defense, but not one sent for tribute. So that became a Federalist slogan uh, which allows the Federalists to increase their majority in the House of Representatives in in the 1798 elections. And that also leads to, you know, this sort of a war tempo about uh, spending more money on, and this is when Hamilton is asked to come out of retirement because of the Adams wants Washington to lead the army, so Washington says, yeah, I'll be the commander-in-chief and I'll lead the army as long as I have Hamilton as my right-hand man again. So Hamilton becomes the inspector general right behind Washington to organize the army and to start uh, recruiting and uh, supplying and equipping and building more forts. Uh, So we really go on a war footing after the XYZ affair. And uh, this has nothing now to do with executive privilege. But what winds up happening? So we're preparing for an act of war with France. What does Adams decide to do? Even though Congress is giving him the money and Congress is authorizing and spending the you know the resources to prepare for an invasion of France or even to attack some of the French areas. What does uh, we haven't done the Louisiana Purchase yet. So what does Adams decide to do?
1: God, uh, full steam ahead. You know, uh...
2: no, he doesn't go. In, he doesn't go to war.
0: I'm agreeing that with Manny that he, he says, we're going to prepare, we're going to no, get ready. No, no, no. But at the same time, he sends back another diplomatic mission. So he's going to give the French one more opportunity. And that's then what leads to the Treaty of Morfontaine, which is called the Convention of 1800. So what happened is, uh, let me ask you this, who takes control of France? So earlier it was the directorate, it was uh, Talleyrand, and, you know...
2: There's, Napoleon. There's,
0: takes over. So once Napoleon takes over, Adams uses it, and Adams doesn't know yet that Napoleon's going to take over, but uh, this is an opening for uh, to re- re- redo or reinitiate negotiations. So they send uh, three names that are not as, as famous, but they send another Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. This is Ellsworth. Uh, they send uh, Murray and, I forgot the third, but we send three commissioners uh, to renegotiate to give it one more chance before we go to the full open war with France. We were just doing a naval war, and that's when they Reached this convention of 1800 called the Treaty of Morfontaine, and that then leads the way, plows the way for uh, the. Well, what treaty happened in 1803?
2: Louisiana Purchase.
0: So, had we not reached peace with France in 1800, <laughs> we may not have been able, through Jefferson,
2: to do the Louisiana Purchase. Yep.
1: But, I mean, what, uh, the Louisiana Purchase was a treaty? Yeah, it was, yes. Really? Uh, that's not a transaction uh, between countries part so it part of a treaty.
2: peace treaty but it was
0: a land sale treaty that was the best land deal in the history of the world
1: ah uh, yeah very cool okay so that's clarified so it was a treaty it's a land treaty land
2: well, let me... well okay. i'm glad that we didn't uh decide to go to war with france in terms of attacking them i think that france in those days was well, much we would have been, de- would have been depleted
1: for no, the War of 1812. And later, there's,
2: nothing, to de- there's <laughs> nothing for Washington to have done. It really the it's okay, the here's navy. a, good qu- here's the a good navy question. that you have to build. If up. we go
1: to France at that time, would would there have been a War of 1812 ten well, years we, later?
2: The, the American army did not was not capable of landing in France and uh, putting up a fight. Really, at that time, yeah, I agree. And the French were up in arms in those days. We would have been eaten up. That there's But no we way. did take
1: on the uh, the Barbary Pirates. Well, well,
2: that was later. That was in the 1800s. But what we could have done is we could have invaded some of the French possessions in the Caribbean. Uh, right. Yeah. That, that was but, another. So, but that requires that the Navy be built up, not so much the Army, but the Navy. And I'm not sure we had that strong a Navy in those days, and it was very expensive. Those. So
1: the real question is, again, <coughs> if we had gone... To war against France, would there have been a war of 1812 on our on our land? Who knows?
2: Land? Hard to say.
1: And do we win it? That's the problem.
2: <laughs> Think By about the, way, it.
0: the comments you made. Is a perfect segue. For listeners to go to the website, statutesandstories.com. So, in this environment, we're on a war footing, preparing for a possible war with France, active military engagements. That's when the Navy was created. The Navy, yeah. and, then, and I have to double check to verify the date, but I'm pretty sure it was in that 1898 time frame that the Navy was made a cabinet level agency, and we officially re- reconstituted the Navy to prepare for this war with France. So,
1: wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah, I'm, I'm off Did you, you just say 1898?
2: No, no, 1798. But during the yeah, Yes, America didn't have a Navy.
1: That wasn't, that, but, we didn't go to a steel con, Navy no, until no, 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 1890. No,
2: no, 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 but Congress gave letters of marquee to privateers, private vessels, to prey upon the British. We didn't have a, a formal Navy, right? Is that right, uh, Adam?
0: We had the Cutter Service, which was the Coast Guard, right. and the revenue cutters, but we did not have a Navy. The Navy was disbanded after the Revolutionary War.
2: Yeah. How brain dead was that? Whose <laughs> well, idea was that? Hamilton, well, si- <laughs> Hamilton, and, Jeff and and Washington. Probably. Really?
1: Yeah. You think Hamilton would have gone for something like that? Well, he something? wanted
2: the revenue cutters. That's
1: it. That's he just expensive. wanted the, it was time fact, to cash. I
2: don't think the navy was disbanded. I'm not sure that there was much of a navy during the American Revolution because I think Congress mostly gave letters of marquee to, to private captains, who would, uh, in effect, they privatized the navy for ships that were already built. So they would prey upon British ships. Like John Paul Jones did not have a... Yeah, a, he was
1: our he was our real official yeah, but, pirate. Yeah, he
2: was a pirate. I mean, yeah. he was our guy. He He's was our, our guy. pirate, so he was okay. He was our pirate. But I don't think he was on a ship that had been built by Congress and paid right. for. He had a letter of marquee to prey upon British and ships. And get
1: a percent of, of what and he, he got. Would,
2: whatever he got, he would you know, keep... And he would do it lawfully, because he had a letter of marquee from the Continental Congress. I don't think there was a formal navy until, you know, 1798.
0: So this is the information I'm going to throw out to listeners. Okay. Go to website, com, go to the index, and it lists the laws that we've blogged about, and 1798, here it is, the Act Establishing the Navy Department,
1: 1798,
0: right. the Marine Corps Act of 1798. Right. So it was in this environment, as we're gearing up for a possible war with France, that the Navy was reestablished. and I'm going to read you now from that post. So the Act Establishing the Navy Department, April 30th, 1798, and the background is that the Continental Navy, originally created in 1775, was disbanded after the Revolution war. And you're right, Ed, it may have been you know sort of a contract Navy, but nevertheless, yeah. they understood it to be a continental Navy. And the United States Navy was reestablished by Adams within the Department of the Navy, which became a new cabinet-level Secretary of the Navy. And uh, the Secretary of Navy's duties included the procurement of naval stores, materials, construction, armament, and the employment of vessels of war. So uh, you know, this is that's, that's the environment of 1798. We wound up making peace, and there's a, a nice quote about Adams, that uh, all the things he did, he wrote the Massachusetts Constitution, which was the basis for the U.S. Constitution in many ways. He was the uh, the president of the Continental Congress. You know, Adams is a giant, the, the first vice president. But uh, this is what he says, that he wanted on his tombstone that he made peace with France, that he prevented and, and yeah. uh, avoided war, unnecessary war that, with France.
2: That would have been nuts to, for us to invade France. It's like, maybe invade Haiti or or some of the French islands in the Caribbean, but you know, France was a real more superpower. more landless
1: peasants? Is that what you wanted yes, to say? Yes,
2: yes, absolutely. But France was a real uh, superpower in those days that nobody could beat, so it's better not to get into a land war in Europe against the superpower of the day.
0: So, so, so Let what? me give you another French connection. So we, we talked about these big examples. Three of them are Washington. One of them is Adams. Last week we talked about the Burr case, and let me give you some more examples, not in too much detail, so we can spend some time talking about the Nixon case. But Madison, did he ex- exert, and he didn't use the word executive privilege, but did he withhold documents? And the answer is yes, and it had to do with uh, French trade restrictions. What about Monroe? And uh, Monroe exerted executive privilege involving, curiously, the Florida territory. Okay. So this is when we're beginning to uh, expand into Florida after the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, so Monroe uses executive privilege, Polk uses executive privilege, but the one example I want want to give you, and this is getting more recent, which I try not to do, but Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, this is very interesting, refused a Senate resolution requesting information, and they wanted information from Attorney General at the time, and he says, no, the Attorney General don't answer, so the Senate committee then requests the same materials from the Bureau of Corporations, and remember back then, Teddy Roosevelt was a trust buster, and he was somewhat progressive, so the Congress wanted information from the Bureau of Corporations about uh, certain parties and certain uh, promises, etc. And uh, what does Teddy Roosevelt do? So Congress first tries to get it from the attorney general. And I would argue there's a stronger case. The attorney general might be not just executive privilege, but attorney-client privilege. So then they go to the Bureau of Corporations, which is an executive branch agency. So what does Teddy Roosevelt do? Which takes a little bit of chutzpah. The president personally seizes the documents and dared Congress to impeach him.
1: Whoa. Uh, so that means uh uh Trump should do the same. No. <laughs>
0: So this is the guy that speaks softly and carries a big stick. He says to Congress, I'm taking back the documents, I don't want them to be made public. He seizes them, dares Congress to impeach him, but they don't. They don't proceed any further. So this is why in this back and forth where the different departments have their uh, their spheres of influence, that if one branch doesn't stand up and exert its authority, then it loses the authority and that creates a precedent. So uh, when I said Eisenhower was at a high point of executive privilege, I would also say Teddy Roosevelt was at a high point where he... You know, he seizes the documents, takes personal possession of them, and says, "I'm not going to give them to you." and dared Congress to take action and they uh, they didn't. So this is how it gets quite interesting.
1: Incred- incredible that uh, it's uh, every time we do the uh, this show, we um we the audience should appreciate the fact that not much has changed in terms of political sentiment. circumstances certainly do, but and of course, perspectives of the circumstances. But the actual virtues, principles, concepts, and maneuver—political maneuvering—are all bases uh, are all based on the same uh, strategy, where the 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 three uh, departments, uh, sorry, the three branches of government have to define and create parameters for themselves, and you can see how the other branches are imposing themselves on each other, and I also am including the courts, who sometimes legislate from the bench. So it really is amazing for uh, the kids out there and for our school system out there to realize this is where uh, we're failing our children. We're not explaining the great details in our classrooms, what Adam is doing here today. So uh, we've really got to get off this multiple choice exam and get off these outlines in these chapters
2: in these books and talk the way we're talking. Well, you make the podcast available to all schools. Uh,
1: yeah, the, uh, you can always come back to wsqfradio.com and look for Statues and Stories tab, and you're free to embed the podcast and, and share them with each other. I'm starting to think that uh, perhaps we have got to get rid of the one teacher, one classroom rule.
2: Oh, no, absolutely. You got to go online and learn about other places. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and no, I'm perhaps two places. teachers. <clears throat> Uh, doing banter in the classroom when it has to do with like English, a talk in,
2: show. like a talk
1: show, and have teachers arguing with each other so the kids can actually listen in on the debate. And the question is, how would you, ex- how would you, uh, how would you examine these kids after the fact? They would each take a side, and how would you grade such an exam? It would have to be based on facts and mm-hmm. truth. So that's something to ponder today here on Statues and Stories. You know, my Mac and a rock rampage moment. So, Adam, how are we going to close this show today about executive privilege? Should it be expanded, or reinvented, or do you think that the presidents today should be held back from claiming everything is executive privilege?
0: I'm going to decline to answer what I think. I'm going to give you what Madison thinks. So I'm going to quote. Oh, uh, you're just for- too cool. I'm going to quote you from Federalist 47, the Federalist Papers, and this is actually quoted in the U.S. versus Nixon case. And maybe next week, if we want to continue on this same subject, we can go through the cases as opposed to just the examples. But I'm going to read you from Federalist 47. This is Madison writing about uh, separation of powers. This is what he says. He says that judicial power of the United States vested in the federal courts by Article 3, Section 1 of the Constitution can no more be shared with the executive branch than the chief executive, for example, can share with the judiciary the veto power where the Congress share with the judiciary the power to override the presidential veto. So he's saying there's certain things that can't be shared. You have to stand your turf. He goes on to say that any other conclusion would be contrary to the basic concept of separation of powers and the checks and balances that flow from the scheme of a tripartite government. And that's the beauty of our system, that the different branches, depending upon what political support they have and the strength of the argument that they're trying to make of what's needed or not needed, you know, go through this delicate balance. And Madison goes on to say, we therefore or we reaffirm that is the province, and now. See, is this, still of, this is now in the Nixon decision. Uh, we therefore reaffirm that it's in the providence and duty of this court to say what the law is with respect to the claim of privilege presented in this case. And what the court does is it cites the Marbury versus Madison case, which we can talk about later. But uh, what this boils down to is if one branch takes on too much authority on its own, then that becomes tyranny. But uh, if the other branches don't stand up, then one branch can get away with more or less. And uh, there are no right answers, and it's going to be quite interesting to see how this will play itself out. But uh, next week, let's do that. Let's go through the the U.S. versus Nixon case. And to your point earlier, Ed, the case goes through the Fifth Amendment. It discusses the Sixth Amendment. It discusses uh, the concept of the rule of law. It discusses prior precedents. And let me just mention as a a sort of a preview of what we're going to talk about then next week. But, um, you know, when an important decision is being reached by a court, they dust off other important precedents because they have to then not just write opinions but convince why the opinion is right they have to give the justification and the reasoning when you write a supreme court decision especially if people are going to be paying attention so the us versus nixon case which is the only time where executive privilege made it to the us supreme court cites the marbury versus madison case cites the youngstone the youngstown she mm-hmm. steel case uh, cites Uh, The U.S. versus Burr case, which we can talk about, and uh, it's going to be quite interesting to see, you know, if this case goes to the U.S. Supreme Court again. uh, It cites Cordozo, cites Frankfurter, cites McCullough versus Maryland. So uh, I'm looking forward to discussing the application of executive privilege in the courts next week.
2: And I think in in the case of today, in addition to executive privilege, we also have Article Five double jeopardy. Because a lot of these investigations have already been conducted, so there are all sorts of angles to, to debate.
1: Well, this. stay tuned because I have a feeling Trump is not going to give up his tax all returns,
2: right. and he's well, going to claim executive privilege re- all the way to the no, Supreme if his Court. his tax returns can be looked at, that then means everybody, yours and mine yeah. could
1: be. And Adams, yep. And then Adams will have to opine. So we'll end it on that note. All right. Thank you very much. And we'll see Thank you Adam. next week, Adam.
2: Thank have you. Have a good evening, gentlemen. Thank you.
1: Take care. So. This concludes the statues and stories. Uh, I don't know. I gotta ask the audience: Was was Ed that victorious today? He wasn't as sharp as he normally is. What? I think it's those brownies he brought me. I yep. don't know. I know that I was sharp, man, because I've had those. I had those brownies. So thank you, Katrina. If you're listening to the show, you are now in our fine memories. So that was a statue, and your brownies was the story. Stay tuned for Chris Hall. She's going to talk about the Alabama abortion law. All right. Stay free, my friend.